0: The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts,
1: Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, we're bringing the funny this week.
2: Okay, I'm ready. Uh, It's going to be funny, 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 all the way through. Funny, funny, except we can't.
1: What? Can't what? We can't bring the funny. As women, we are not biologically equipped to be funny.
2: Oh, come on. No. Explain.
1: What do you mean? Well, you know what I'm talking about. I'm referring back to a highly contentious article... Written by Christopher Hitchens for Vanity Fair back in, in, well, Uh I like Christopher Hitchens, but in 2007, he wrote an article to, to make a long story longer. Hitchens maintained that women are not funny because there's no need to be funny on an evolutionary scale, that men will protect us and be attracted to us even if we don't make them laugh. And furthermore, women are more interested in talking about things than making jokes about them. Jokes are a male code. And finally, and this one, if you don't know about it's going to kill you. (laughs) I know where you're going. (laughs) When women themselves laugh, it probably is because a man has a small penis.
2: Yeah. So I think that is the whole issue all wrapped up. And anyway, I bet that went over really well, particularly the small penis part.
1: Yeah. So then you might recall a bunch of famous female comedians like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Sarah Silverman took issue with this. And they appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair and obviously had the wherewithal to show him the error of his ways as they're all highly successful comedians. But Hitchens just doubled down and said, bless your little heart, but I'm still not laughing at you.
2: (laughs) That's his problem. And then he kind of died. We totally died. We shouldn't be laughing.
1: No, but that does sort of win the argument, doesn't it? Hey, come back here. So anyway, the argument continues in comedy and almost every other area of women are lagging behind.
2: Yeah, which kind of sucks, but we're going to change all of that with the podcast. And so today we have on our podcast, Allison Dor. So she is the founder and CEO of Howl and Roar Records, which is a female-centric comedy record label that empowers artists and facilitates the creation of content. So many questions like what's a record label? Yeah, I sort of remember those record labels, but she's also a broadcaster. I'm not sure that broadcasters exist anymore. It's podcasters, right? She has a daily show that's called The Breakdown on Sirius XM. She has a podcast like us, which I believe is on hiatus because podcasting is, well, it's kind of hard, as we know. Podcasting is hard, do you think? Tell me about it. And she's a former comedian, which is like perfect, Maureen, because our whole podcast is a comedian and a journalist walk into a bar. She's a former comedian. Perfect. But I
1: don't think you can be a, a former comedian. You either are a comedian or you're not. It's like being a priest. Even if you decide to leave the church, you are still a priest.
2: The church of comedy. Women are still trying to make their way. We're getting we're getting somewhere. Good analogy. But is it funny? No, of course not. You're a woman.
1: Let's say hello to
2: Alison Dore. Hello, Alison hi thank you so much for having me oh it's so lovely to talk to you so can you be funny that's how i I used to do interviews with comedians all the time and i would start by saying tell me a joke (laughs) yeah and they wendy they
0: said some mean things about you behind your back after that question because comedians hate that question But I do just want, uh, guys, I have to big you up a little bit before I dive into you. I want to comment so bad on everything you just said. But I just want you to know that I am so stoked to be here. And when you asked me, I texted so many people being like, oh, my God, guess who asked me to be in the podcast? I can't believe it. So I'm so thrilled to be here. By the way, Hitch would love it that you said. And then he died and laughed. He would love that. And I think he's one of those guys, I loved that guy, but also I wanted to punch him in the face. And I think that's the reality of human beings, because that was one area where I went, no, you're completely wrong about this. And if we want to make it genetic and biological, he is forgetting a huge component, which I think men can do sometimes, which is sure, women don't have to be funny necessarily to attract a mate, if you want to go by that logic. However, One of the biggest threats to women's safety, especially if we go back to evolutionary days and cavemen's, is men.
2: Yeah, and some of their jokes are not funny, you know, like for for like 10 years, it seemed like all of the jokes that men were doing was about, hey, I'm going to hump you in the behind. Let's do a hump, hump, hump. Isn't this funny? No, it's not funny.
0: It's (laughs) It's kind of funny when you do it. That was pretty funny. But managing the emotions of men is Something that women have had to do since the dawn of time. And humor is part of that. So I, I hate the biological argument because humor has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with genetics. But at the same time, it's like, buddy, you missed a huge component of the Like you oversimplified, my friend. And the fact that you don't think women are funny doesn't mean they're not. It means you don't think they are. But part of why he was in a way so beloved is he had his opinions and he would get a glass of whiskey and tell you what he thought. And he didn't care. So that was a tough one for me because I was in a real loving that guy phase when that came out. And I was like, oh, now I hate you.
1: He broke a lot of people's hearts. That's why we're still talking about him years later, because it was an intelligent argument, not a valid one, but an intelligent one. And it kind of broke those of us, especially us women who loved him. We're like, it's like you're telling me I, I get it, but you're breaking my heart and then, as we said, he died. But the argument continued. He sure, he sort of died, as Wendy said. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know what? I, this is a completely different trap to fall into, but he was an atheist, and everyone wanted him to say that women were funny, but they also wanted him to say, okay, now you're entering the, the pearly gates. Will you embrace God? And he was like, nope, but I don't think he ever said women were funny either. So he kind of stuck to his guns, as the men would say.
0: Sure. I mean, he, he thought, yeah, he thought what he thought. And I think when he got sick, that was the big question everyone had for him. And like, I'm also an atheist. And I think there is this idea that, you know, in the last moments, you're going to change your minds. But I also think, sure, that's on people's deathbeds, they have changed their minds. But I think you can't go with what they said in the scariest moment of their lives versus what they said for their entire lives. But he was one of those people that, yeah, was like, no, of course not. It doesn't matter that I'm dying. I still
1: believe what I believe. Bless him. <laughs> and I say that with all the irony. Speaking, okay, so we, we're, we're, we're touching on religion and comedy, which are not totally disassociated. Let's go back to that idea that that you are a former comedian. You're not a former comedian.
0: No, I mean, I use that only because I don't get on stage anymore. And... Yeah, I'm a former stand-up. And to me, I think when you're in the stand-up world, you think stand-up's the only type of comedian there is, which obviously is not true. But yeah, I just don't get on stage anymore. But you're right. Marie, it's a way of life. It's a way of being. It's, it gets inside you. I always liken it to the mafia. You can quit, like, but you can never really leave. Like, or it's Hotel California, you know? And so it is something that just it's a way of looking at the world at some point. It becomes almost an ideology because you're constantly thinking about how is this funny or seeing sides of it that maybe people who don't live in the weird world of comedy might not see. So you're right. It never leaves you.
2: Well, I think Maureen and I would agree with you when we had we had a big fight. (laughs) We've had a couple of little fights, but one big fight. And during that moment, she sent me Tina Fey's notes on how to do improv because I kind of agree with all of the comedians who say stand up is like the ultimate, ultimate. But I can't imagine doing that your whole life. It would be so hard. So you did stand up, but now you're doing kind of sit down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Before we get to Allison, back to me, I just, I disagree. I think stand up you know you're tight 10 minutes you work on it you polish it you've got your piece you come out but i think improv is more demanding because you have to think on your feet and you don't know where you're going where stand up is more of a controlled effort what would you say to that alison
0: I think you're right in many ways. And certainly improv is the hardest, right? Which is also why improv has such kind of a bad rep in a way is because it's so difficult that if it's not going well, the audience is like, well, I hate improv. This is ridiculous. But when it goes well, it blows your mind. And there are people that are so gifted and I'm okay. I'm not great. Like that. You look at people like Melissa McCarthy, who is a genius improviser, Paul F. Tompkins, oh, my God, he's so good. It makes me want to cry. But I think with stand-up, like, when you start out, for sure, you're very much going from the the script. But there also has to be a fluidity and a give and take with the audience. And that's what makes the best stand-ups the best. And when you watch a special, like, that's a bit of a different situation because you're right. That's very polished. They're saying what they have worked on and they've practiced. But when you're in front of an audience in a club or whatever that show setting is, it's much different. And it is there is a lot more improv because you have to control the room.
2: Isn't it harder these days? Because I I, like I saw a few years ago, I saw Don Rickles, which was probably one of the last shows he did before he died. And I am not a Don Rickles fan. Sweet
1: man, though, apparently.
2: Well, yeah. So so is Don Cherry. But uh, seriously, (laughs) sweet man. But I went to see Don Rickles because all of the comedians were saying, you have to see Don Rickles. He's dying and he's like, he's a god of comedy. Even if you disagree with everything he says, he's funny. So I went and at the end of it, he did improv. He was like a thousand years old. He was dead two weeks later. It killed him. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It was the, it was the it had to be the improv. Anyway, he did all of these jokes, but they were all like basically racist. Like there's no way that anybody could do those jokes today
1: that's the generational thing though.
2: But how do you do improv in this day and age where everybody takes offense at everything?
1: How do you do comedy? It's such a scary time. So I'm one of
0: those people that doesn't feel like it's a scary time, to be honest with you. And I think it's really funny. The difference is, and first of all, with Don Rickles, it's different for sure. People who love comedy and have been watching him their whole lives, give him more of a pass. Like, If you look at Eddie Murphy's first special Delirious, if you did not watch it in the 80s, you cannot watch it now because you'll be like, this is horrifying. You will not be able to overlook the jokes, which he has since apologized for. And Don Rickles is very much the same. If you don't have the context of Don Rickles from like the 50s, you're going to go, what am I watching? Who is this man? But I do think like today... It is a different time. We have a different sensibility. And the difference is, is that it used to be only the comedian had the microphone. And so if you didn't like the show, maybe you complained to the venue. Maybe you went home and you told all your friends you hated the comic. Now you get on social media and you tell the comic directly. And so the difference is now comics hear the feedback. It used to just be you get laughs or you don't and you judge it on that. Now you get people giving you their commentary on social media And no one who creates or wants to be in the public eye wants to hear you suck and I didn't like it. And so I think comics are very much like, well, you can't say anything. Well, of course you can. You can say whatever you want. But now the audience has the mean to say whatever they want too. And that feels uncomfortable. And so it's not any different than it ever was before, except for now you're hearing the feedback you don't want. So you must get, you do, can we talk about your show? Of course. Yeah, we can talk about whatever you want.
2: But you must get lots of feedback because you started this show to interview or actually to empower, I think was the word, empower female comedians. You must get lots of feedback. And so like, tell us, I guess, why did you launch your show? Oh,
0: you mean the label?
2: Yes, yes, yes.
0: Okay. So the label was, it kind of happened by accident. And there were a few things that caused it. But one of the thing is, so I do, I host a show on Sirius XM. And there is a Canadian comedy channel there. And my boss asked me if I wanted to curate a show for that channel, Celebrating Women in Comedy. And the idea is that like the Canadian comedy channel usually only plays Canadian comedians. And so when I got access to kind of the system to see who's in there, I realized, A, we did not have enough women in Canada with jokes in the system for me to be able to make it a show just about Canadian women. So I had to broaden it to celebrating funny women around the world. And luckily, they let me do that. But also, it was because women in Canada just were not recording at the same rate as their male counterparts. And obviously, there's way more men, but proportionally speaking, they weren't doing it. And there was a number of like headliners and women that have been doing this for 20, 30 years that had nothing. And I was like, why aren't you recording? There's people out there with even a great 20, 30 minutes that it's like, you could, this is additional income. This is additional exposure. This is all the kind of things. And I kind of went around just yelling at women for a while, being like, why aren't you recording? (laughs) And (laughs) shockingly, that doesn't work. That does not motivate people And then I also had some issues with, I had put out an album. The experience was, I hated it. And so I kind of went, okay, I think there are some barriers that women face that men don't necessarily in comedy. And I think I can, seeing both sides of it now, and now being in more of an audio field, I think I can make it a lot easier. And so initially, I was just going to like low-key help out some ladies And it kind of snowballed and got away from me. And then I realized that there are also challenges for men of color and people in the LGBTQ plus community. So I didn't want to make it exclusively women, which is why we're female centric. So 70% of our focus and output is on women. And then in the remaining 30%, it's our focus is on people in marginalized communities. The one exception, obviously being my brother, because it is entertainment and nepotism is the rule. (laughs)
1: <laughs>
2: the women of ill repute so your your brother's a comedian too john Dor.
0: yes my brother's a brilliant comedian he i mean he started comedy first i started acting when i was a teen and he got into comedy i think probably when he was about 20 and then he started encouraging me to do it. And I kept saying, I'm not funny like that. And he was like, no, there's no like that. You're either funny or you're not. And he kind of, I always say he forced me to do it, which makes him so mad because he's like, I didn't force anyone. I'm like, I'm joking.
2: Obviously, I'm not that funny. You're funny for a woman.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And sometimes men don't get our jokes and it's hard. But basically, yeah, just he, he kept saying, I think you should do it. And after a couple of years, I was like, fine, I'll try it. And then the first time I did it, and when I started, there was only one club in Ottawa. So you got to book one open mic spot a month. And I booked my one spot, and it went well. And I think if it had gone badly, I never would have gone back.
2: Must have been terrifying. I can't even imagine what it would be like the first time going on stage trying to be funny.
0: My brother's girlfriend at the time, who is also a comedian, had to hold my hand and walk me to the stage because I was like I don't want to go. I I changed my mind. I don't want to go. And she's like, "No, they said your name. You have to go."
1: You <laughs> have to go. No one else can go.
0: <laughs> yeah, she's like you have to go. And so she literally had to like escort me to the edge of the stage and get on because it is terrible. And what an insane thing to want to do, to look at a sea of strangers and try to make them laugh. It's insane. But then when it works, it's the best drug in the world, right? And if I had bombed, bombing feels so bad. And if I had bombed that night, I don't think I ever would have gone back. But the first few times I did it, it went pretty okay. I got some laughs and I felt pretty good. And then by the time I bombed real hard, I was like, well, I'm too far in now. (laughs) I know how good it feels on the other side. I can't
2: not do it. And did you ever have anyone say, why would you go to that girl show? Like the, the Hitchens thing? I mean, he's dead. Is that argument dead?
0: No, of course not. We're in a fun time of a new rise of this weird misogyny, which is great and fun. And, you know, the internet has many blessings, but it also has a lot of dark side. And so, no, I think there's still a lot of, and you can see it when women post clips of their standup on Instagram or on YouTube. And there's just tons of, well, women are funny. Like, look at this loser trying to be. So it's still very prevalent. And I think the one thing though, I mean, women expect that right? Like we, when, you, when you get in this industry, you're ready. You, like it's going to happen. You know it. I think the harder thing, and this happens all the time, is when you get off stage at a comedy club and someone comes up to you, and this is all genders. No gender is exempt from doing this, comes up to you and says, I don't usually find women funny, but you were really funny.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. A funny woman.
1: Wow. People say that though. They do. It's like saying, I didn't like you when I first met you, but now I think you're great. It's like, fuck <laughs> What good is that to me? Yeah. And especially when it's young women, I always go, what do you mean you don't usually
0: find women funny? Do you not? Because when they really think about it, of course, they think women are funny. But the society still, there is this kind of culture of women aren't as funny as men. And so it's that subconscious kind of information you're getting over your life that you don't realize has kind of embedded itself. Because I think when you sit down and kind of pull it apart, it'll be like, oh, I actually do think a lot of women are funny.
1: I'm going to do a, a bit of a deep dive into this, hopefully not too deep, but a lot. The first women that were successful in comedy and that made men laugh were almost grotesque. They were big or they were clownish or, and that that hasn't disappeared entirely. sort of the, I think of Renee Zellweger as Bridget Jones putting on weight and falling down and getting a face full of whatever and... I think the first woman who managed to be attractive and funny on a broad spectrum was probably Lucille
2: Ball. Huh. I'm not funny, but I'm brave, she said. I think that's one of our favorite quotes. Yeah. Well,
1: and think of Phyllis Diller, who was actually an attractive woman, but made herself look ridiculous because that made it more palatable to her audiences. And it's only recently that we've seen women who are attractive not that it should matter, but not feeling that they need to be self-deprecating while they're out there presenting themselves. Yeah. And
0: it's absolutely, that's something that was in my head a lot as a comedian is, you know, my, I remember my headshot at one of the clubs, it's like my headshot was for acting. And so it was much more done up. But when I came to do the club, I'm not dressing sexy. I'm also really, I'm kind of not that person. I rarely (laughs) dress sexy in my life anyway, but- yeah, I'm probably going to put my hair up. And I remember some kid, some guy, I say kid, he was probably 20, saying to me, oh, but I wanted to see this girl do stand up. And I said, no, you don't. You think you do, but you don't. And it was because often the reaction from the audience and like this was a while ago and things have changed somewhat. But as a woman, you step on stage, there's always this one guy. He always sits in the front row. He's always a beefy bro. And he sits and stares at you with his arms crossed your entire set. And listen, like that kind of stuff, because I already struggled with self-confidence would really get in my head. And I think there is a new generation that is much more self-assured in many ways than I was. And I think if you look at someone like Nikki Glaser, who is so hysterically funny, but is also sexy as all get out and like it works. And so we continually kind of broaden. I was going to say what we allow, which is a terrible way to put it. But yeah, I think it is. There has definitely been steps forward for sure.
2: Can we talk about the, like you sort of hinted there that you had the thing about the guy sitting with a straight face and the arms crossed, but you also suffered from anxiety and depression and uh, mental health and all the, all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, we want to jump in on that because I find it really fascinating and compelling and true that mental health and addiction and comedy go harm in harm. So tell us, talk about that.
2: Or people go into journalism.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, comedy is a coping mechanism, right? And I think so that's part of not everyone who is a comedian is struggling in that area, but a lot of people who are struggling learn to have a sense of humor to cope. And so like, I remember I had a nervous breakdown when I was 23. And so I moved back in with my parents. I was like sleeping 18 hours a day. And when I, on the way down and on the way back up, there were times where I would go and do comedy. And it was so weird. It's like, I would go and do a set. It's only like five minutes on an open mic. And then I'd go home and be like, should I kill myself? Like, what? What am I doing? But how weird, right? That I was able to go. But it was because of when I found comedy, because in order to write jokes, you kind of think about things differently. And it was something that really helped me reframe certain things in that depression and in that where I started I started going, could this be funny? And I didn't really do that stuff on stage, but just for myself in my life, in my worst moments, every now and again, I would be able to turn something around and suddenly I'm like, I feel a tiny bit better. So I do think that is what brings a lot of depressed people to comedy is that it helps you
2: cope. So it doesn't make you funny, it helps you survive.
1: Oh, I think what doesn't kill you makes you funny. I definitely do. It's all interwoven,
0: right? It's hard to kind of pull, like, and it's hard to know what comes first because I do think, obviously I was funny before I was, de- although I dealt with all these things when I was a kid, I just didn't know it. So it's like nothing came first, all of the things are true, right? I'm funny, I'm also depressed and have anxiety, and will go on to become an addict and will do all those things. They're not none of them are mutually exclusive. And you don't have to have any of those things to be funny, but a lot of funny people do because comedy is such a crutch.
2: Well, I love how you I can't remember where I read it, but somewhere someone writing about you or I think it was on a something that you wrote, you said, "Learn to be afraid. Swing big, like take risks." And I just I think that's something that you know, women of ill repute is something that some people go, oh, no, I'm not a woman of ill repute. But, but, <laughs> but we all kind of are. And I think it is basically about learning to fight back and to fight for stuff that you believe in. And, you know, we choose to interview people that or to talk to people that we think are fighting for stuff that matters as opposed to making the world a, a less good place. But I think it is it is about be afraid, swing, swing big, fight back.
1: It also, you know, define fight. I mean, if for for me, and I think for Allison, I may speak for you, Allison. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll allow it
1: <laughs> that telling jokes is a form of fight. It's subversive. It's asking you to see. It's scary to do, especially if you know you're eventually you're going to offend somebody. Humor is by nature offensive. So you know, you don't just fight with guns and knives. You can fight with words, and you can fight and making people laugh is a bit of a victory, isn't it?
0: Oh, for sure. And it feels very powerful. And yes, look, it is true that no matter what you say, at some point, someone's going to get offended because comedy's subjective. And what I think is funny and appropriate to make fun of, there's always going to be someone who doesn't. I mean, you have to have a thick skin in comedy. And so comedy saved me in a way as so many other things did because I was so raw and emotional and everything hurt me. And in comedy, if you let don't get me wrong. There was many times I cried, but at the same time, it's like, if you don't start toughening up, like, yeah, you're just going to quit. You can't stay in that world. So I do think, yeah. And there's been so many times, first of all, it was difficult for me too, in the sense, I don't want to say difficult, but an interesting layer was that because my brother is so brilliant and so funny, there were so many people who were like, she only does it to try and ride her brother's coattails, or she only got this gig because of her brother. So there was this additional thing to push back against. And I think when people, yeah, I'm one of those people when someone's like, you can't do that. I'm like, well, now I have to. (laughs) Now you've made it. So you basically double dog dared me and now I have to. And so I think that kind of helped in some ways because I went. And listen, my brother is also my best friend. He would give me anything if he could. But if you think my brother has the power to get me places, bless, you don't know anything about the Canadian industry. And so, yeah, there absolutely is fight. And being a woman on stage, again, when I grew to love that man in the front row that had his arms crossed, because I was like, you're trying to psych me out. (laughs) I'm just going to stand up here and talk in the microphone, do my little jokes. And it's going to make you so mad the whole time and you're not going to like it. But you have to sit there and listen. And so it is a fight, and there is something subversive in it for every comic that gets on stage because you're, yeah, you're kind of forcing people to listen.
1: I have to ask you practically. So Howl and Roar Records, so you you record, like I, I need to know the practical end of this. So where, what happens then? You're not putting 45s in a record store. So where do people access this bank of talent?
0: Everything is pretty much digital now. Sometimes people get hard copies and especially comics with like older comics with an older audience. I'm always shocked when they're like, "I sold out of CDs." <laughs> what? A CD? What's that? <laughs> Bless every person that still has their CD player. But it's you go to the website, you go to Apple Music, Spotify, you can buy it on Bandcamp. It's every single online title, YouTube Music, like whatever streaming platform people use that's where you buy and find comedy
1: albums. All right. Now, Wendy wants to know about your tattoo.
2: (laughs) Which one, Wendy? Well, the only, oh, how many are there? Uh, There's at least seven. Okay, I can, I'm only going by the one that is in the photo that appears everywhere when I research you. So it's on your arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can tell me about any that you want to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really need to get new pictures, by the way. So the one on my shoulder is kind of space. So there's one on my back and I've tweeted and probably, I don't know if it's still on my Instagram. Uh, I'll have to put it back up because I make a joke that Ben Affleck and I are, are the same person, but, um, <laughs> what? because we both have giant Phoenix tattoos on our backs. His is much bigger than mine. Mine is about a quarter of my back. His takes up his whole back.
1: That's Phoenix, everybody. That's Phoenix. <laughs>
2: It's not like the Roger Smith, Ronald Reagan tattoo on his back. It's not, it's not like that.
1: (laughs) No, no,
0: no, 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 no. It's, you know, a phoenix rising from the ashes. I feel like, I feel like we both got them after we got out of rehab. So the phoenix, I wanted it kind of, kind of flying into a night sky that then goes into like space. And then weirdly, and this is, I don't know. The problem is once you get used to having tattoos, you don't like in the first tattoo, I was like, I got to really think about it. Now I'm like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, tattoo that on there, which is what happens. You just, it becomes so easy.
2: (laughs) But then you have it for life. Do you have any that you're embarrassed of that, you know, you got when you were 14?
0: Okay, so I'm not embarrassed because whatever. It's the passage of life. But of course, the first one I got was when I was 18. It's a tramp stamp. It's the lower back. Yeah, of course. (laughs) It's off the wall. I went in and very studiously looked at all the pictures on the wall, which I don't know how many places even do that anymore. And I picked one that's, it was Celtic dragons. And, you know, my background is Scottish. And I said, this is meaningful to me. Put it right above my butt crack. (laughs) (laughs) And it's still there. (laughs) Yeah, it's still there. And actually, it's not in bad shape. So the one I got, like, literally as soon as I got out of rehab is on on my wrist. And it says, Still I Rise. Because when I was in rehab, I read Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise, like, a thousand times a day. Because it really just, yeah, gave me strength and inspiration. And so I decided to get this tattooed on my wrist because I'm very visual. And I was like, this will be my constant reminder not to do drugs. But I just walked in, like, I finished work at this restaurant I worked at and just went down the street to a random tattoo parlor. And said to this girl that was there, and clearly she was like the newest person there. And I was like, this is what I want. And she was not great. Like, she's not good at it yet. And her cursive is not great. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) I I put in my boyfriend's name. Oops, sorry. Yeah. So is it the most beautiful tattoo? Absolutely not. But then at the same time, I love it because it's very representative of that moment in time in my life where I was newly clean and going, I gotta stay with this. And no one can ever tell what it says. <laughs> I was like, what is that? They always think the I is a Y and it, it, but that's okay with me. Most people, if someone goes, is that about Jesus? I was like, Oh, absolutely not. No, someone asked me if it was two pack lyrics. I was like, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he said it. <laughs> he knew, like, he, he knew Maya Angelou. So maybe he worked it in, but that's not where I got it. And then the, the, so the Phoenix on my back was the first time where I spent real money and it was kind of designed for me. And it's colorful and beautiful. And I loved it. And then, yeah, I added the shoulder piece. Oh, this is what I was going to say. So it's space. But then I was like, you know what I love? divine proportion. It's neat. Can you add that, you know, it's like that sea, <laughs> the seashell kind of looking thing that is the mathematical equation. I go, just put that in space. Makes no sense. Like nobody, people look at it and go, why is, I'm like, I don't know. I just like it. It's weird that nature just does that. So put it in space. You need an evil eye.
2: Evil? Do you have an evil eye?
0: I don't have an evil eye, but then it just, yeah. And then you just keep going. So then that now my whole I have a half sleeve on my right arm and it's a garden and there is a plant to represent each of my grandparents. And I
1: just, you know, keep adding stuff. I have, I have a son who, uh, he's an English, well, he's in law school, but he's also getting a degree in English. Don't ask. He's just over the top. But he, uh, every year for his birthday, which is coming up, he puts a a quote, a literary quote on the inside of his arm. And he deals with the same kind of questions that you get because sometimes the font is obscured and it's like, what is that? But I mean, it means it's meaningful. You're, you're your own personal scrapbook. I wanted to ask you, we're not going to keep you much longer, although we could keep you all day if you'd let us. Tell us about Chili. Oh,
0: so yeah, Chili is my sweet, beautiful angel, Corgi. I rescued him when he was three. From
2: the queen? <laughs> From the queen. <laughs> she, she was abusing him.
0: Yeah. I think we all know that family is suspect and so I said not for this baby dog no I, you know what chili is so representative of so many things in my life because I struggled for a really long time and you know post rehab it's so funny in rehab they're like by the way when you get out you're gonna think your life is just gonna magically get better because you're clean now and it's not and I was like okay for everyone else though for me it is and then I got out and I was like oh, things are still hard. And I, you know, I still struggled and, you know, working a bunch of Joe jobs and trying to do stand up and feeling like nothing was working out. And my whole life, I've wanted a dog. And when I finally, like, success kind of came when I got the show at Sirius and my life stabilized a bit and I was happy for the first time in a really long time. And so I started thinking about it more, but I also had this fear of, like, I... I had a cat for a few years and I blame myself for that cat's death just to make it really heavy. And because historically speaking, I have felt very unbalanced, right? Like with all the mental health issues and then the addiction and a lot of fun self-esteem and self-worth issues uh, all mixed up in there. And so I never fully feel capable or trust myself or those kinds of things. And when the day came where I kind of started thinking like, could I handle this? Do it financially? Am I responsible enough? Am I responsible enough to take care of an animal? And a friend of mine, and I'd always loved corgis, and randomly a friend of mine said, do you own a corgi? And I went, obviously, because I thought we were just talking about cute internet dogs. And she's like, okay, because I know a guy who's going to take his corgi to the Humane Society this weekend if he can't find someone to take it. And I was like, wait, what's happening? And I took chili for a trial weekend Because I really, you have to understand at this point in time how little faith I had in myself. So I was very scared that what if I'm not enough for this dog? What if I can't take good enough care of him? But at the end of the weekend, I realized that my anxiety about giving him back and him going to the shelter was equal to my anxiety that I would not be able to give him a good enough life. And. When I went into rehab, one of the counselors said like the door to rehab opens when you want to quit as much as you don't want to quit. And so I kind of look at things as like, okay, when my anxiety is equally balanced in opposite spectrums, you go with the risk kind of, right? You go with the scariest option. And so for me, kind of, it's like, I have to trust myself more than I trust the shelter more than I trust. Like, I think I can give this dog a good life. And so getting him was like a huge risk for me. And it's literally been the best thing. And Chili's messed up too. He's got anxiety. He's got issues. (laughs) You're quite the pair. (laughs) Yeah. He's a little nightmare, but he's perfect. And it's changed my life. And it's made me a better person because it's made me more patient. It's made me more loving. And during the pandemic, especially those first few months in 2020, I wouldn't have got out of bed if it wasn't, I got to take care of Chili. Chili's got to go for a walk. I wouldn't have left my apartment for three months. But he's got to, you know what? He has needs and my job is to meet those needs. And so he has just been the but He's also hilarious. Like He is a ridiculous dog and he is so obstinate and so funny and he falls down a lot. (laughs)
1: but there's not a long way to go right (laughs) when you're a corgi
0: (laughs) (laughs) with the short legs
2: (laughs) yeah i was gonna say christopher hitchens had a few things to say about dogs not he didn't
1: okay (laughs) i still believed you i was like i don't know about this i think she's just trying to do that circular thing you know your bookend
2: yeah because we gotta go I had so many more questions for you, like your favorite interview. Well, you've you've dropped a few names, so we're going to go and check those out. And we just love what you're doing for women and for funny women and for
1: and for yourself and for Chile. And thank you. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I feel like I've known you forever, and I mean that in the nicest possible way.
0: I mean, same. And I love this. And yeah, I would love I would love to
2: talk to you both
0: again.
1: All right, let's make a date.
2: She was lovely. I I think we had so many more questions, but she has such great stories.
1: She is an open book. I found her incredibly moving and, I mean, hilariously funny, but just, I don't understand why so many funny people are so wracked with anxiety and suffer from depression. But she, I do understand, because she explained comedy is a coping mechanism. So, you know, it's probably better for you than drinking, to a certain
2: extent. (laughs) Well, drinking is good. It's funny because she made me think about it in a different way, which is it's not that all sort of people who are depressed and anxious turn out to be funny.
1: Wouldn't that be great?
2: Yeah, if only life were so simple, that, that comedy provides you with an escape for depression and anxiety, which is a happier way of looking at things.
1: Yeah, but then, okay, so here it's a double-edged sword. So you take to stand up or improv or performance or whatever, and it helps you get away from your depression. And if you're successful, you get all this adulation and then you become addicted to that. And when it fades, and it always does, it may ebb and flow, but it's not always there, then, you know, chances are you go back to your addiction, whatever it is. So comedy is a dangerous business. It's, it's risky for a lot of reasons. And I like Allison so much that I'm happy that she seems to be in a
2: good place. Yeah, the other thing that she put a happy spin on something that I you and I know a lot of people in the comedy business, different people, but I think they're all finding it difficult. It's difficult to make a joke these days because you're you can offend people so easily, but she was saying actually it's better because the connection is stronger because of social media. And so, you know, we we've all seen like crazy troll shit on social media, but there's really good stuff too, and she was she was playing up the good stuff.
1: And you know what I I agree and I also I find the internet is hilarious. I find uh, there are so many truly funny people out there who aren't professional. And that's like the internet makes me laugh every day. So that's the positive side. It isn't all bad.
2: So I wanted to ask her who, were her, who are the funniest people? And the only one she mentioned was Melissa McCarthy, who I know already.
1: And Nikki Glaser. There's another, I'm going to give I'm going to, what I'll do, Wendy, is I'm going to uh, get back in touch with Allison and, you know, send our thank you note and ask her to refer us to a bunch of other funny women so we can have them on the show. You see? Huh? Huh?
2: Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. And you know what? It's, it's funnier than reading the news on the National somehow. <laughs> I knew you'd see it this way. <laughs> a lot of jokes there. Yeah. It's been lovely. It was lovely to talk to Allison and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye. The Women of Ill Repute with
0: Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at Women of Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. <laughs>